So James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Why do the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? It's a question that God's people have asked for as long as God has had people. I want you to hear the question wrestled with in the words of a psalmist in Psalm 73. One of God's suffering children writes these words. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Have you ever been there? Have you ever lived in this place where it seems you've kept your heart pure in vain? Why have I walked with the Lord? Why have I committed myself when every morning brings new punishments? What if the wicked, arrogant person spoken of in Psalm 73 also wrote a psalm? What might it sound like? It might sound something like this. Look at everything that is mine I have created this kingdom. I have more than every man. I need nothing. When I see something I want, I take it, no matter the cost. I know how to use people to my advantage. While people around me are starving, I have more food than I'll ever eat. While people around me don't have clothes, I have more clothes than I'll ever wear. While people around me have no money, I have more money than I will ever spend. Why do I need God? When I'm the cause of all this success, God is a myth for weak people. Now, we've heard from the suffering righteous person. We've heard from the arrogant wicked person. What does God have to say to these people? What would God say to the oppressed believer who is feeling as if God has forgotten them and left them to suffer unjustly? And what would God say to the abusive, arrogant power broker? Well, we don't have to imagine what God would say to these two people because we have James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. In this passage we're going to study today, God speaks to both types of people directly. He speaks to the oppressor and the oppressed, the abuser and the victim, the wicked and the righteous. And so your interaction with this passage this morning really depends on some of your experiences in life. You might be on the receiving end of a warning from God, or you might be on the receiving end of hope and encouragement and strength, the kind of hope that enables you to sing what we just sang and do so with confidence. So you might walk out of here this morning with your knees trembling at the Word of God to you, but I think for so many of us, 
We'll walk out of here this morning with our legs strong, ready for the race ahead, prepared to stand firm in the hope we have in Jesus Christ. So I want you to follow along with me as I read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And as I'm reading, I want you to think about it this way. Remember I said God is speaking to these two different groups this morning. The first six verses, God is speaking to that uh, wicked oppressor. And then starting in verse 7, he speaks to the afflicted person. Hear the word of the Lord. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. It's a heavy passage. We haven't tiptoed through too many light passages in James, have we? This one in particular is pretty heavy and very serious. And we're going to treat it just the way it's divided this morning. It's God speaking to two different groups. Verses 1 through 6, God speaking to those wicked oppressors. Verses 7 through 12, God is speaking hope to his hurting children. Uh, and there's no cutesy way to package it. We're just going to approach the text in that way, one discussion at a time. So if you're taking notes, first discussion is what I would call a warning to wicked oppressors. Verses 1 through 6, a warning to wicked oppressors. One thing that a question that comes up repeatedly in a study of James is to whom is James speaking? Is James speaking to believers or non-believers? And in different letters in the New Testament, that can change depending on the context, the subject matter. <clears throat> and in James, it's the right question to ask, and there's some scholarly debate throughout. But when we get to verses 1 through 6, it's a, the right question to ask. Is James speaking to believers who are oppressing other believers, or is he speaking to non-believers who are oppressing believers? Well, throughout James's letter, he's written to believers and believers exclusively. That's been my contention. Back in chapter 1, when he addresses brothers in humble circumstances and those who are wealthy, I said back then those are both believers, and there's room in the family of faith 
in James's experience for both those who are rich and walk in humility with the Lord and those who are poor and walk in humility with the Lord, there's place for both. In chapter 2, when James speaks about the practice of favoritism in the church, how wicked it is, how nasty it is, that some people get the seat of honor while other people get treated like animals and have to sit on the floor at other people's feet, well, that's, that's a believer-on-believer believer offense in chapter 2. He's not talking about non-believers coming in and getting these seats of honor. He's talking about the way the church and its dysfunction would attack and mistreat each other. So throughout the letter, every part of the letter up to this point has been pointed towards believers. Sometimes that wording has been terse, but it's still a direct word to believers who need to repent from sin and walk in faithfulness with Christ. But chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, I think is different. When we get here, there's a shift in James's attention and he's speaking to what I think is a very specific type of non-believer. And the type of non-believer he's speaking to is the oppressive, arrogant non-believer who takes advantage of God's people. So how do we know this? What, what would tell us this? Because James doesn't just come right out and say, now to you non-believing wicked people. He doesn't say that. But there's some context clues here that help us. First is the subject matter. In verse 2, he tells this uh, group of people that misery is coming to them. In verse 3, it's their possessions that testify against them. In verse 4, uh, pe- uh, the people they have oppressed testify against them also. In verse 6, they're accused of murdering innocent people. I think those things point to a non-believing audience. Second clue is the language in this passage reflects Old Testament passages like Psalm 73 in describing the wicked oppression of the righteous innocent. Another clue in this passage is verse 7. In verse 7, James speaks clearly to believers. Look at it with me there. He says, be patient then, brothers. So anywhere you see that kinship language, like brothers, James is referring to believers directly. Be patient then, or therefore, be patient, brothers. He gives them this instruction in verse 7 in light of what he said in verses 1 through 6. So in light of what he said to these oppressive non-believers, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. So in verses 1 through 6, I take James to be speaking to the wicked oppressors of God's people. And what are these wicked oppressors like? Well, James gives us a description of them in this passage. These wicked oppressors are wealthy and they possess fine clothes in verse 2. In verse 3, they possess gold and silver. Also in verse 3, they have stockpiled their riches. In verse 4, they have fields, crops, and employees. In verse 5, they live in luxury and self-indulgence. They have every worldly success. They have every enviable worldly quality. We would look on these people and we would say, look at everything they have and they don't even walk with the Lord. What does James say to these people who have all the trappings of worldly success? Verse 1, they should weep and wail today. Because misery is coming for them. Their power and wealth do not secure for them a happy future. It ensures their condemnation. 
In verses 2 and 3, <clears throat> excuse me, James describes their miserable future. He says in the future, their wealth is rotted, their fine clothes are eaten by moths, their gold and silver are corroded. And what will those corroded goods accomplish on the day of their judgment? Look carefully in the middle of verse 3. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. The scene only intensifies as the charges against these people pile up. At the end of verse 3, they have hoarded wealth. In verse 4, they have failed to pay their workmen. In verse 5, they've lived in luxury and self-indulgence, gorged on food, and condemned and murdered innocent men. Now, I want to be very clear here. James, in this letter, nowhere in this letter, is he anti-wealth. He is anti-abuse of power and position and wealth. And he is keenly aware that worldly success is a wide road to all kinds of temptations and corruption. So the person with much should be careful before they just dismiss this as talking about something else. And the person with little should be careful before they say, God is pro-me and anti-everyone with more than me. So imagine a courtroom scene. On the witness stand, the accused is the wicked oppressor here in verses 1 through 6. The wicked oppressor sits on the stand and it's time for witnesses against them and guess what? Their wealth testifies against them. Their workmen testify against them. Their murderous actions testify against them. What's more, the workmen have cried out to the judge in this courtroom, the Lord Almighty. And the wicked oppressor is guilty on all charges. Misery and fire are the eternal judgment against them. Just because it's uncomfortable, it does not mean we skip it. And it does not mean we soften it. And for us to treat this passage properly, I have to assume that there might be someone in here or some ones who are in the crosshairs of this warning in verses 1 through 6. The wicked oppressor in this passage is not merely some rich person who's mistreated employees. These verses call out every person who has used their positions of power to victimize a weaker person. This passage has felt so very contemporary in the wake of the ongoing conversation and the exposure of sexual abuse and those who have hurt and victimized innocent people all around us. So it's possible we have someone like that here today, someone who is an unrepentant abuser. And to those who are inflicting violence and abuse of any kind on other people, the word to you from God is weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your acts are anti-Christ. To think you would hurt another in this way and call yourself a Christian is a demonic self-delusion. Acts of abuse are evidence of your own damnation. 
Saved men do not hit their wives or their children. Saved people do not commit sexual abuse verbally, physically, in any form. All forms of abuse and oppression are demonic. And those acts done in dark, kept secret through threats, are no secret at all. God hears the cries of your victims. And your judgment is sure. However, there is another way even for the victimizer. Throughout Scripture, when God gives a warning to sinful people, that warning also comes as a word of grace. It is a grace that you would be warned of your impending judgment. And it is grace because maybe you will listen and maybe you will repent and maybe you will be saved. Will God save an abuser or an oppressor? Well, the Apostle Paul says yes. Before he was an apostle, he was a government-sanctioned terrorist. He broke up families, arrested innocent people, and watched as they were executed unjustly. And the Lord saved him and changed him And he will do the same for you. This does not mean you will be reconciled to the person or persons you have abused. This does not mean you are exempt from legal accountability. It seems that a sincere salvation would include full confession and a full acceptance of the consequences of your actions. Now this part of James, these verses here, don't get as much attention as other parts that we like better. Parts about helping orphans and widows or resisting the devil and him fleeing from us. We don't like to talk about flesh being eaten like fire unless you're a survivor. In which case, there is an unusual comfort for you in these verses. God knows what you have suffered, God has heard your cries. And he is present with you in your hurt and grief. And those who have committed those acts against you will face the eternal wrath of God apart from or unless they turn to him in true faith and repentance. In that case, the cross of Christ bears the judgment for the sin against you. God is your comfort even if so many others have let you down. And in this discussion, we have to confess that the church at large, at times, has let so many victims and their families down. The church, in many cases, has not believed victims, or worse, it has believed them and protected the perpetrators. Sometimes the church has blamed the victim. Sometimes the church has told women to return to their abusive husbands in submission to his authority. Sometimes the church has told women that they're not permitted to consider divorce of their abusive husbands. But you've got to trust God who hears your cry and is present with you and is for you even when other structures depart from the wisdom of his word. God's judgment is unleashed against every dictator, every persecutor, every abuser. And that judgment is perfect, eternal, and just, and a comfort. The wicked do not 
prosper. God's word to wicked oppressors is a word of judgment. It's a word of warning. It is ultimately a call to repentance. But God's word to the oppressed believer is a word of hope. So I want you to look with me at these next few verses. Verses 7 through 12, if you're taking notes, I would label them this way. Hope to oppressed believers. Verses 7 through 12, hope to oppressed believers. James gives hope to suffering believers in this section in the form of three commands. He doesn't just tell us, you're going to make it, it's going to be okay, no cliches here, but rather what we find in James's instructions is that even in the context of suffering, God's people can flourish and grow and experience abundant life. So I want you to look at the three commands he gives to those suffering believers in these verses. Uh, first of all, he tells us, trust the Lord no matter what. Verses 7 and 8 sum it up as trust the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. And then he gives us an example of patience. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains? Well, you too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So he tells believers, James tells believers, to be patient in our affliction. And in what sense are we to be patient? Well, James points forward to the return of Christ. Verse 7, be patient until the Lord's coming. How long does my patience have to last? How long must I endure? Until the Lord's coming. Now that's not to say we just sit and twiddle our thumbs and we explain away abuses and suffering and afflictions as, well, Jesus is coming, you just wait. It doesn't leave us without his presence or without his power in the present tense. Those of us who know God's word know that after Christ died and rose again, he then ascended to the Father so that the helper could come. We're not without help in the present tense. For the believer, God the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You are not alone in your affliction. You are not abandoned to wait until some distant unknown future. This day, God is with you. And it is strength for you and strength for God's people always to remember there is a day of Christ's return. We just sang about it. When the clouds roll away, the trump resounds, Christ descends. We sang about that because that's a day of future hope in the present tense that fuels our endurance. So no matter what the situation is, no matter what the circumstances are, God's people are rooted in Christ's victory once and for all. And a victory that is, uh, comes to its culmination when the sky splits open and Christ returns for his bride, the church. Be patient until the Lord's coming. That coming is a double-edged sword. For some people, according to verse 1, his coming is misery. Remember that? Weep and well for the misery that's coming upon you. When Christ comes, it will be judgment for those wicked, unrepentant oppressors. But for others, his coming is salvation, it is glory, it is exaltation, it's beauty. Our waiting is not some passive suffering. James tells us in verse 8, be patient and stand firm. 
Now, if you have an NIV Bible, the phrase there is stand firm. If you have another translation, you might have a different phrase there. The NIV has paraphrased this Greek figure of speech. The literal phrase in the Greek in verse 8, instead of stand firm, is strengthen your hearts. Or if you have an English Standard Version Bible, it might say establish your hearts. Strengthen, establish, stabilize, fortify. These are the things that James is telling us. Strengthen your hearts. So Jesus' command, or excuse me, James's command is for us to maintain our trust in God. If I've strengthened my heart, I do so in the promises of God that he's given me. I don't, standing firm is not just standing around. <laughs> standing firm is holding fast to what God has promised and believing it no matter what. The one who died and rose again and rescued us from our sin is trustworthy even when the hard day lingers. So brother and sister, do not let Satan and his schemes damage your faith. Be patient. Stand firm. Strengthen your hearts. And do you remember how James opened this letter way back in chapter 1? He told us, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How interesting is it that James would revisit this theme here at the end of his letter? When we studied that passage way back in the 2017s, I defined perseverance in a very specific way. I defined it this way. Perseverance means holding firm to the promises of God until every trial is finished. Holding firm to the promises of God until every trial is finished. So being patient and standing firm means we trust God no matter what. We trust the Lord in the face of our suffering, our affliction, our oppression. After commanding us to be patient and stand firm, James next challenges us to pay attention to the way we treat each other. His first instruction to believers, trust the Lord. His second instruction is this, love like the Lord. In verses 9 through 11, he tells you and I, when we exist in a context of suffering and affliction, love like the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now, at first glance, this may not seem like it fits in the context of of James's subject matter, but, but I think it fits perfectly in this discussion. Have you ever had a rotten day, say, at work, and then you came home and unloaded on the people you live with? Bad day at school, you came home and you were just rotten to the people around you. I've never done that. Maybe you have. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Man, it's it happens often, doesn't it? We 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 just we carry that baggage, that hurt into our homes or into our other relationships, and then it manifests itself in impatience, temper, loudness, all that mess. And it's not anyone's fault right there. You're, you're fighting a fight that you've left behind someplace else. You're just taking it out on the people around you. When we are under affliction, when we are enduring suffering, it's easy for us to turn 
on the people we love. So James says, don't grumble against each other. Uh, we don't use the word grumble so much. And, and when we do, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's just a minor complaint. But I think what James is getting at here, we, we've seen how important speech is for the believers throughout this letter. James comes back to that time and time again. The way we speak matters. And so this speaking against a fellow believer in a context of suffering is something we've got to be aware of. We can't treat each other poorly just because we're under suffering or persecution. James challenges us to watch our words because if we don't, we're going to be judged also. Right? Look at what he says there at the end of verse 9. The judge is standing at the door. Now, that works two ways for the believer. One, it's a reminder that even in a context of suffering or affliction, we still have to pay attention to our sanctification. Going through hardship is not an excuse for sin. So when he says the judge is at the door, he's reminding us to hate sin, to love the Lord, to walk with him in holiness. But also, I think he's reminding us that this period of struggle is going to be brief. The judge is at the door means Christ's return is imminent. And even if you were to smugly say, well, it looks like James was off by a couple of thousand years, God's people have always lived with a sense of Christ's imminent return. So even in trials, God is shaping us, molding us, moving us away from sin. Consider that all of the New Testament documents are written to churches in the context of persecution. Every single document. And none of them excuse sin. They all called the persecuted church to holiness, to Christ-like living. And that's what James encourages us to do as well. He gives us some examples, starting in verse 10, examples of perseverance and holiness. He says that when we persevere in the face of suffering, we're like the prophets who suffered and spoke in the name of the Lord. They didn't grumble against their brothers they spoke in the name of the Lord. They're patient, they stand firm, they strengthen their hearts, and they speak in the name of the Lord in the face of suffering. And then in verse 11, when we endure suffering in this way, we're like Job, who endured and was blessed by God. The prophets and Job are reminders to us of this monumental truth at the end of verse 11. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Underline that, highlight it, write it in permanent marker on your bathroom mirror. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He's our relational God. Compassion and mercy only manifest themselves in the context of relationship. And He's patient with you when you're not at your best, when you use hardship as an excuse for sin and a bad attitude and rotten words and things like that. He's compassionate, He's merciful. So much so that he's not going to leave you in that sin. That even though circumstances are difficult and challenging, he will still lift you, carry you, and mold you and shape you in all of that. And just as the Lord is compassionate and merciful, and just as he bore our sins at the cross, you and I in all of our affliction are to reflect him as well. We are to be people who are compassionate and merciful, especially to our brothers and sisters in the faith. James has told us that we've got to trust the Lord. We've got to love the Lord. 
And then his last command to us is to speak like the Lord. In verse 12. Look at what he says in verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Again, another verse that seems out of place. It may not belong to this section, but again, I think it fits perfectly. James instructs the church by quoting Jesus in verse 12. In Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says almost these exact words. In verse 37 of chapter 5, Matthew 5.37, Jesus says, Let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. James says, Don't swear by heaven or earth or anything else. In the first century, in, in the absence of so many paper contracts, <clears throat> excuse me, paper contracts or electronic contracts, People would make commitments by swearing oaths. And the sincerity of your oath could be proven by the value of the thing you were swearing on. And so Jesus in Matthew 5 gives an example to show the escalating nature of oaths. So you might swear by Jerusalem to repay a debt. Or if you're really serious, you might swear by the earth. And if you're really serious, you'll swear by heaven itself. Today, if someone were to say something like, I swear on George Washington's grave. It either means they're really serious about what's coming next, or it means they're straight up lying. What would happen in the first century is people would swear an oath, and they would attach something to it like heaven or earth or something else. But then when it came time to fulfill the oath, they would back out by saying, Well, I swore by earth, but I didn't swear by heaven. (laughs) I swore by heaven, but I didn't swear by George Washington's grave. Whatever the thing is. So the swearing of oaths was not for this practice or the sake of honesty. It was for the sake of dishonesty. And so James encourages the suffering Christian, watch your speech. Don't use your suffering as an excuse to tear your brother down with your words or as an excuse to be honest. Christians always speak truth. Christians always mean what we say. We keep our commitments and we don't need oaths or we don't need to swear in order to make our word real and true. So does that mean we should never swear an oath? Well, that's how Quakers interpret Jesus' teaching and James' teaching, but I don't think that's what they're getting at here. James is telling us to speak the truth. That's it. Just speak truth. So if you tell a friend you're going to be there to help, do it. And if you tell the lender you'll pay them back, do it. And if you tell your boss you'll do the project, then do it. And if you tell your kids you're going to spend more time with them, then do it. And if you tell your love, till death do us part, then let your yes be yes. So James has come out swinging today. He's given us a lot. To the wicked oppressor of God's people, he warns of a sure and terrifying judgment. But in that warning is a word of grace for every sinner who turns to Jesus in faith. To those believers who have been hurt by others, 
who face persecution, who struggle under affliction or with bodies marked by this fallen world, trust the Lord, love the Lord, speak like the Lord. See, when you find yourself hard-pressed on every side, James takes you to Jesus. The hard day doesn't have to be a day of despair because we know Christ is our reward. He meets us in our weakness. He carries us through the hard day. He comes to our rescue, and once and for all, at the end of all things, he sets everything right. And his judgment is just and on time And his healing is perfect and forever. Charles Spurgeon is one of the more remarkable figures in the history of Christianity. If you don't have a Sunday school class, you should go to the fellowship hall after this service for the Heroes of the Faith class. And today you will learn about Charles Spurgeon. Incredible success, unbelievable workload. But for all of his success, he struggled intensely with chronic illness, and mental health issues, including depression. So Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. In my suffering, in my affliction, in my hardship, I have Christ as my treasure. And if that's what I get from this, then I've got everything. What a blessing that trial is. What a joy that hardship is if Christ is my reward in all of this. We began our time together this morning in Psalm 73 where the writer is saying, man, if I just, I've blown it. This has all been for nothing. I've kept my heart pure in vain because all the wicked people prosper around me. That's how this psalm starts, but that's not how the psalm ends. And that same writer ends his song this way, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The wicked do not prosper. The righteous are not defeated. God is victorious. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word that gives us strength today. And it gives us strength just for today. Tomorrow we're going to need to fill ourselves again. But Father, I know the subject matter we've discussed this morning from your word, it is a sensitive subject. And should there be anyone in here or anyone who would hear this message that is an unrepentant victimizer of other people, Lord, we trust you with this person's soul and your perfect judgment. And like you, it is not our desire that anyone should perish. So, Lord, we pray that they would receive your warning, that they would be humbled, that they would turn to you in faith. And I'm grateful that there are many whose testimonies are like Paul's. I used to destroy people. 
but Christ has changed me. And that testimony is no less radical than any other testimony in this room. All of us, objects of wrath, sinners through and through, that require the death of the sinless God to rescue us. Thank you for that salvation that saves sinners of every stripe when we come to you. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters in here who have suffered at the hands of another, who still carry wounds that are ages old, still wrestle with these issues. Father, thank you for being present in our grief. Thank you that these acts do not have the final word. Holy Spirit, bring comfort and healing, compassion and mercy again and again. Help these brothers and sisters to find their voice, to find their healing, above all, to find you. For those who suffer affliction of any kind, bodies failing, emotions running rampant, brains not cooperating, all the impact that this fallen world has, Lord, we long for the day when everything is set right. And until that day, fortify us with hope. Help us to suffer and endure those sufferings, persevere to trust you no matter what, to do so in the power that you give. Lord, strengthen our hearts for this day, that we would stand firm, that we would love our brothers and sisters that we would speak boldly your gospel, your word. Our yes would be yes, our no would be no. We would live Christ-like lives through and through. Lord, don't let us use our hardship as an excuse for faltering, but rather let it be the context of the gospel flourishing in us and through us. Lord, this passage throws us at you, and we need you in all your fullness now. Bring compassion and mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.